What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Bond yields are moving decidedly lower today, despite a mixed bag of economic data. Consumer confidence up for the first time in four months, but a key indicator held at hard landing levels for the third straight time. And the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Survey reported a surprise contraction. That, plus some dovish remarks from the Fed's Christopher Waller, will look at whether it clears the way for stocks to continue their year-end rally. And the biggest winner from holiday spending so far is the Internet and e-commerce. Cyber Monday spending soaring 10%. The total dollars now bigger than Black Friday. E-commerce, buy now, pay later stocks are up again today as a result. A firm is up 20% in the past two sessions. We'll talk to the Jefferies analyst who finally upgraded the shares. Plus three AI plays in today's earnings exchange. Amazon isn't even one of them. Uh, Intuit, Foot Locker, that's one that comes up. We'll give you that story, the action, and the trade on all three. Let's start with today's market action, though, and Dom Chu brings us the latest numbers. Green still, Dom. Green still, but we've seen both sides of that unchanged line. So again, with this market, we were down at one point today, up so far right now just in the middle of the trading range so far. And as Kelly points out, the screen across the screen, the Dow Industrials up 65 points, about two-tenths of 1% gain, 35,398. The S&P 500, 45.53 the last trade. They're up about two points, just about flat on the session. But again, at the highs, we were up 18 points, actually down 10 points at the low. So again, kind of splitting that difference right in the middle of that range so far. The NASDAQ composite up one-tenth of 1%, 19 points, 14,260. Now, Kelly mentioned... Some of the drop in yields that we've been seeing, we're also seeing a weaker U.S. dollar. All of that is factoring into the price of gold that we're seeing up one and a half percent to two thousand forty two dollars and change per troy ounce. The reason why I want to point it out is because at this point here, we're just at around near six month highs for gold prices. And I've put up a four year chart because it was back in 2020, August of 2020, that we saw record highs for gold prices. That was roughly around $2,089 per troy ounce. So again, moving towards that direction, we don't know if we'll get those record highs, but you can see in context of the longer-term chart, gold prices are getting a bid these days. We'll see if that continues. And then a couple of Dow stocks in focus today. Two of the best performers in the Dow so far. Boeing, the best performer, up 1.5%, being keyed in part by an upgrade by analysts at RBC Capital Markets who think that sustained demand for aircraft, defense products, will help free cash flow trends in the coming years. Boeing shares up 1.5%. And then Microsoft, I'm throwing up there only because with a three-quarters of 1% gain, at one point today, it gets a gold star because it did hit another record high for Microsoft. So Boeing, Microsoft, and the outside of things, watch gold prices, all ties into rates in the dollar. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Uh, and Dom, I will see you next hour. Thank you so much. The 10-year yield hitting its lowest level in more than two months after dovish comments this morning from the Fed's Christopher Waller. Remember, just five weeks ago, yields were sitting at over 5%. We're down around 433 today. Steve Leisman is here with more on that story. Steve? 
Hey, Kelly, yeah, Fed Governor Chris Waller igniting a bomb and stock market rally, some of which remains, some of which doesn't. Uh, when he said the quiet part out loud, something few of any Fed officials have been willing to say, and that is if inflation continues to fall for several more months, the Fed could lower rates, that there would be no reason for rates to remain, quote, really high. Those comments were good enough initially for 15 points or so on the S&P before those gains were given up, at least some of them were anyway. The market reacted first pretty well to his prepared remarks, but they shot up during the Q&A when he talked about rate cuts. The 10-year also fell about four basis points in yield. By way of background, I asked two Fed officials last week about the possibility of rate cuts, and they weren't having it. They Neither would discuss the issue with me. That followed the lead of Fed Chair Jay Powell, who said at the most recent press conference on November 1st, the fact is the committee is not thinking about rate cuts right now at all. We're still very focused on the first question, which is, have we achieved a stance of monetary policy that's sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2%? Well, you can see what Waller's talking about here when you look at inflation versus the Fed funds rate. Inflation has come down while the funds rate has remained elevated. So the gap between the two means the Fed has become tighter and will continue to get tighter if inflation keeps falling. The market changed its outlook on rate cuts, upping the probability for a May hike to 62% from 38% after those comments by Waller. Now, it remains to be seen if other Fed officials, or even the chairman especially, echo those words. The Fed has not wanted to talk about cuts for fear it would hobble its fight against inflation by loosening financial conditions. And that, Kelly, is exactly what happened today. Uh, real quickly, Steve, the significance of Waller making these remarks as opposed to a different Fed official. <clears throat> Well, you could you could look at it two ways. One is it's just a truism. It is true that if inflation keeps falling, the Fed's going to be higher and higher than it probably needs to be, uh, or, or say at the beginning of or, or, or by the first, first through the first half of next year. On the other hand, you could say there was some intent there in the sense that, look, if he didn't think this was going to happen, he wouldn't be talking about it. This has been kind of built in, Kelly. We've had a 50 or 60 percent probability on that May rate cut uh, out there before. It had been down a little bit lower uh, in recent days, but it's not all that unusual to be right back here. And really, the market had built this in. And now we just wait and see. Do the inflation numbers come in? Does the Fed chairman uh, then sort of echo these same remarks? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, stick around as we turn now to the U.S. consumer doing more and more of their spending online. Shoppers spent a record $12.5 billion on Cyber Monday deals yesterday, up nearly 10 percent from a year ago and surpassing the initial $12 billion estimate. Cyber Monday spending is now bigger than Black Friday, in fact, which was around $10 billion this year. And it all comes as consumer confidence finally showed some improvement this morning, but expectations remained at recessionary levels. Joining us to talk more about all this is Steve Odland. He is CEO of the conference board. Steve, welcome. So, you know, we were just talking about kind of Fed officials and rate hikes and, and all the rest of it. From where you sit and what we learned this morning about the consumer, um, what would you tell us? Well, you know, after three months of consumer confidence declines, we got the bounce up here in November that we kind of were expecting. And that's a, that's really good news. They're still worried about rising prices, especially on food. They're worried about, you know, what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Ukraine. They're worried about interest rates. But look, gas prices over the last two months are down 16 percent. That's huge. And we see consumers spend based on, you know, week to week what they have in their wallet. And when they're relieved from having to put the money into the back end of their car, they can spend it on other things. And this is what's driving, we think, uh, Cyber Week. Cyber Week is up nearly 8%. Cyber Monday was huge, a record uh, level 
Uh, and season uh, expectations are stronger now uh, because expectations for gas prices and inflation is more subdued. So all of that leads to good news for the consumer. Interesting stats, though. People are buying on their phones more than ever before, more than even uh, laptops. So they're doing this on the run, which is uh, probably a good thing since Sunday was the biggest travel day ever. Everybody was stuck in their cars and stuck in airports, and no wonder that they're buying on their phones. But this is a big deal for the holiday season. We weren't sure what was going to happen, but feelings feeling more bullish here. What's the deal with the expectations component here, uh, Steve Odlin? Yeah, so expect so there's two components to consumer confidence. One, how are you feeling right now? And people are feeling pretty good about their job situation and so forth. But most consumers, as well as 70% of CEOs, still say there's going to be a short and mild recession. So you still have that sitting out there. Nobody's quite sure, as Steve Leisman said, nobody's quite sure on whether the Fed's done, when the rate cuts are going to happen. You got all that uncertainty out there, and the consumers are feeling that as well. Steve uh, Leisman, so what, you know, we often follow consumer expectations as one of these leading indicators. So it's still not a great sign that they remain so moribund. Yeah, but I think that more important than expectations or assessment of the economy are prices. And when consumers are out there shopping and buying, it tells me that prices are moderating. Um, people tend to balk or, or when it comes to discretionary items, hey, that's too expensive. I was very interested in how competitive it sounded that retailers were going into the shopping season. It told me that prices were at least moderating. In some cases, there may be even good deals out there. I went to a Best Buy on Black Friday, um, not for professional research, um, uh, Kelly, but for personal research. Um, and the place was mobbed like they were giving away free TVs. I, there were lines to buy televisions. Um, and, and this was not in an upper income neighborhood. It was in a low to moderate income neighborhood uh, where I was. And, and I was amazed at how many people were there. And I think pricing is the first signal. And that then determines whether or not you're going to buy or not. And expectations and consumer sentiment is a layer on top of that that is not necessarily determinative relative to the price. Uh, Steve Odlin, what do you make of that? Well, it depends on what he's right. I mean, obviously, it depends on what they have in their wallet. It's amazing how many households live right. paycheck to paycheck and they've got cash right now. And I think you got to watch these gas prices. The expectations are, you know, with OPEC not coming to a conclusion here, that the prices will continue to fall through the balance of December. That's good news because that gives that frees up more money here than ever before. And this is not scientific, but if you look at what's happened to consumer confidence over the past year, it has floated pretty well correlated with gas prices. So this can turn on a dime yeah. depending on what gas prices are. It comes down to the cash uh, cash on hand here. But, Steve, you know, your your, you know, one store assessment is borne out in the in the big numbers. You're seeing electronics fly. I mean, huge double digit uh, increases, gaming uh, toys, apparel, televisions, appliances. I mean, anything that you can plug in is is flying right now. Big, big sales. Can I, <laughs> can I add to that, Kelly, which is I was very interested to hear, by the way, the TSA numbers. Obviously, travel and services are another way that uh, consumers are out there spending. These were record numbers. Um, look, I don't want to be the guy to miss the turn. But I will say that for 12 months now, we've been underestimating the consumer and their spending. And there may be a moment when all of a sudden it shuts down, but it does not appear to have been 
the first week of holiday the shopping. The only thing I would say to all of that, and I'm not sure which of you to, to ask this question to because it's really a stock <laughs> question, but, but Leesman, I'll throw it to you. The last time I checked a few days ago, the Jets ETF for the airlines was negative year to date. The hotel stocks haven't been doing that great. The grocers, meh. Anything that, you know, if, if the consumer is in such good shape, if they're so excited to spend and travel and experiences and all the rest of it, I don't think the stocks are reflecting that. That could well be all I know. And I'm not, uh, you're right. It's not, I'm not the perfect guy to, to answer this question. The TSA numbers were record numbers. And the only way to get on a plane, I believe, is to pay for a ticket. Zivadlin, <laughs> <laughs> last word, please. Yeah, everything's packed. Every plane is packed. It took eight hours to go from New York to D.C. The roads are packed. People are out there. People are spending. I think this bodes well. Steve Leisman called this the uh, Godot recession. <laughs> we're constantly waiting for this recession. Is it? And Steve, and Steve, what's the answer? <laughs> I know now because he told me last time. The, the answer is, I ruined the book for Kelly. <laughs> Godot never comes. And like, never look, comes. holiday, holiday never wishing. Comes. Let, let's hope it doesn't happen. Uh, look, we want to slow down. We need a slowdown. It's a good thing to have a slowdown. Take the, the heat off of inflation. Release the pressure in the economy. That's a good thing. Keep the unemployment rate relatively low. Um, and have a slowdown, but we don't have to have a recession. One of the most convincing arguments I've heard, Kelly, is this idea, I forget where it comes from, of the precession. Companies have been preparing so long for a recession that they don't get caught in the loop that creates recessions, which is excess inventory, excess hiring, and excess capital spending. That they've had so long to prepare for it that maybe we don't have the excesses that creates a sharp changes in the in the outlook and sharp changes in the cycle i don't know i don't know but i i i now i don't have to read the book so thank you for the cliff's notes <laughs> gentlemen we'll leave it there we've got to get to the bond auction thank you today our steve odland and uh, steve leesman i should say and also steve odland we appreciate it the seven-year notes went up for auction top of the hour we are seeing a market reaction as we do so often rick santelli tracking the action the seven-year rick doesn't usually get much attention but here the dow is almost going negative well, it didn't get much attention today from investors. I think they were all watching your segment because very few of them showed up to actually buy seven-year notes. Let's go through it, shall we? 39 billion seven-year notes and the yield, 4.399. So a whisker under 340. The problem was is that the when issued market was trading significantly different. It was trading right around the 4-point 379 level. So basically a two basis point tail, not good. He had a five or six basis point tail on that ugly 30 year auction. Seven years, a bit of an outlier. It's been getting more aggressive, at least in figuring into portfolios. But this was a D as in dog auction. There wasn't one metric that was up to the 10 auction average. Real quickly, bid to cover the weakest since April of this year. Uh, the indirect bidders, weakest since March of this year. The direct bidders at 15.8 was the weakest since August. And maybe the biggest comp going back that tells me the most is that dealers took 20.3%, the 10 auction average is 12%. When dealers take more than their 10 auction average, it's because investors didn't show up. Obviously, you see what's going on there with rates. I'll give you one quick group of statistics. If you look at January through November of 2023, so far, this auction represented 395 billion 
seven years. If you look at Jan through November of 2019, we were at 352 billion. If you look at Jan through November of 2013, it was 319 billion, just to give you some numbers. It's a, it's again, Rick, I will just say the fact that the seven year can move the market this much, what does that tell you? It tells me that all the happy talk about the economy and happy talk that we can continue to control our debt it isn't as happy. And yes, to focus on the, you know, the, the third leg of a, a crooked barstool maturity and see this much reaction lets us know that we're issuing a lot of debt and the buyer side of the equation is getting a little bit reprehensive about showing up. And I can't imagine it's going to get better uh, as we move through time, especially considering the entire globe is at record debt levels approaching 310 trillion. Yeah, I was reading about Germany trying to kind of pull things in on the fiscal side as well. Rick, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Consumers, maybe bond investors may be a little concerned about things, but my next guest is with the soft landing consensus and says we should look forward to a Santa Claus rally. Joining me with what's got him so bullish and the names to buy now is Chris Morangi. He's Gabelli Fund's co-CIO of value. Welcome. Thank you for coming in. Set. Quite the intro, I know. No one ever wants to say, hey, I'm with the consensus, but uh, tell me what informs your view that we might be able, more like Steve Leisman and Steve Odlin were talking about, to avoid a, a hard landing here for the economy. Yeah, so we're bottom up. We're listening to conference calls, and uh, consensus seems to be that the economy is slowing, but disinflation is setting in. Rates have probably peaked, and that probably means that we're in for a soft, what I would call a softish landing in 2024. Uh, where we get uh, maybe a, a mild recession, a slowdown in growth, but we, we can see through that um, to better times. So Steve Leisman raised the idea of whether companies have been in a pre-recession preparing uh, in some ways for leaner times and therefore maybe avoiding them. I, I kind of look at it a little differently, and I'd want your take on this, which is that if anything, they feel like they've been hoarding labor. They refuse to budge on price. Consumers are starting to push back. And we already see revenues barely growing last quarter while earnings were up, and that doesn't feel sustainable. So I kind of worry it's all going to get tugged uh, in that direction. Well, on the other hand, you've seen a lot of destocking. You've had uh, a lot of industrial companies in particular clearing out their um, inventory, and that's already taken place and, and cleared the decks for, for growth uh, next year. So where are you most bullish? Well, one of the areas that we've, we've liked for a long time and has been painful has been media. Um, and, uh, you like media of all, of all well, the things? <laughs> I, th I think you've got to look beyond the, the Magnificent Seven. Sure. Um, and, which is not a knock on the, on the Mag Seven. They really were the perfect safe havens for 2023, cash machines protected by fortress balance sheets. And they started the year downright cheap. Uh, but at this point, if we are going to get a soft dish landing and rates have peaked, you got to look beyond that. And, and, and in general, there's a lot of uh, opportunity, we think, in small cap, which trades at you know, half the valuation of the broader market. Gabelli himself, if I'm not mistaken, was, is a longtime fan of media, certain media and, and cable stocks. But have, haven't times changed? I mean, it's not, you know, 1993 anymore. That's definitely true. And, that, and that's why it's been so painful as we've gone from this transition from the, the dual revenue stream model to on demand all the time. And we're probably in an inflection point now where you're seeing cost rationalization, you're seeing price increases among the streaming services, and you're seeing the beginnings of a great rebundling, um, whether that's uh, content from AMC appearing on Max or totally. a, a rebundling by Charter, Comcast, and AMC of streaming services. That's all to come. And you know, this, we're in a state of disequilibrium right now, 
And that's probably going to be addressed by consolidation. There's going to be lots of deals in 2024. Well, we were supposed to get a lot of deals this year, and it's been fairly quiet, some would say. But why do you think that it's not going to end up being big tech that rebundles everything? Because I look at what's going on with YouTube, and it feels like that's the bleeding edge here. Well, YouTube will will be at some point probably the largest distributor of pay TV in the country uh, over the next few years. Uh, and, and you're right, tech will probably rebundle a lot of these streaming services, but you know, the traditional distributors like cable are, are gonna have a, a place as well. And that's to the good of those who actually produce content. Or I've always thought if we're rebundling, then does our business model need to change that much? In other words, if we've gone from having you know one customer who needs to pay for channels to a different one with deeper pockets, isn't that potentially good for content? Well, providers? what's old is yes, what's old is uh, is new again, and and that is um, that is the stabilization that we think we'll see going forward. What are quickly some of the deals that we might expect come 2024? For instance, do you try to bet on the players like the Paramounts who seem like the weaker links that are expected to get uh, bid up, but but should likely have some premium already reflected in their shares as a result? Yeah, that seems to be uh, somewhat, it, well, it doesn't seem to be in the stock, but that's certainly an expectation of many people. You know, a lot of uh, people have April 8th, 2024 circled on their calendar. That's the two-year anniversary of the reverse Morris Trust of Warner Brothers hmm. into uh, Time Warner. Uh, and there, whether David Zaslav is a buyer or seller, we'll see. Don't know who's going to do what to whom, but something is going to happen, whether that's you know Sony, do they want to be in the, in the content business? Does ESPN uh, trade someplace else? So these are all the different things that we're looking at. And finally, where else? Where else in the broad landscape of stocks do you think there might be some decent value? Well, yeah, there's just following up on the media comments, we're very focused on certain areas of media, including intellectual owners of intellectual property. And, and live entertainment and sports broadly, which includes some media stocks, some non-media stocks, is a very interesting place. This trend from buying things to buying experiences was accelerated by the uh, by the COVID and will continue. And some of the ways to play that are owning teams like um, the Atlanta Braves, which is a public company, Madison Square Garden, which owns the Knicks and the Rangers, as well as Live Nation, which is the largest producer of concerts in the world. Have they been decent performers, though, these sports team kind of equities? Uh, they've been okay. Um, but there's, listen, the, you're buying the, the Braves today for uh, a notional $2 billion. The Phillies traded for $2.7 billion in a minority stake sale. I think the Braves are worth at least three. That puts the stock uh, in the mid-50s from where it is today at 36. All right. This went interesting places. I wasn't <laughs> expecting it to go, but it all comes back to the, with the uh, kind of macro angle we were discussing. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Chris Marangi joining me from Gabelli Funds. Coming up, shares of a firm are hitting a 15-month high today. They're up 80% just in November. Now one analyst is finally upgrading the stock after nearly two years at a sell rating. We'll ask him why now and where next. Plus stocks, bonds, or alternative assets. Our guest says products like collateralized loan obligations will benefit from the Fed's higher for longer strategy. The biggest name in that business is here to explain why. And as we had to break a quick check on markets which have given up their gains after that week seven year auction, the Dow clinging on to a 41 point increase, the S&P is down two, the NASDAQ is negative now, and the 10 year yield has floated back up to around 436. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Buy now, pay later usage hit an all-time high on Cyber Monday. That was yesterday. According to Adobe, it was up more than 42% over last year. It almost hit a billion dollars worth of sales. It's good news for a firm, which is up more than 145% over the past year, and is on pace for its best month in history. Our next guest agrees, upgrading shares to hold this morning, citing momentum in BNPL and stabilizing consumer credit. Joining me now is John Hecht of Jefferies. John, it's good to have you. It feels like a reluctant upgrade. <laughs> Why the longstanding reluctance? No, I wasn't a reluctant upgrade, and, and thanks for having me on, Kelly. Um, you know, if you go back when we downgraded this about 18 months ago, there were two main factors we were downgrading on. One was higher rates would, would lead to higher cost of capital, whereas also normalizing credit, so increasing delinquencies from all-time lows and so forth, would lead to higher costs of credit. Um, and the, th those two factors would crowd out the gross margin or the earnings trajectory. And both those have, have largely played out, right? I mean, I think we all know we're near the end of some type of rate cycle. And for the type of consumer that a firm serves, we're seeing a stabilization of credit. Now, uh, why today? Why are we more confident now to take those factors and also upgrade the stock is, I would note a couple of things. Number one is, a firm, their actual, their credit is outperforming their peers. Hmm. Uh, Non-prime consumers still, you know, suffering, uh, been been really impacted by inflation. That's stabilizing now, but a firm's credit is actually outperforming the peers. Their delinquencies are down year over year, whereas the peer group is up. Um, and in addition, their funding is stabilizing. They've issued wholesale funding in the market to fund their growth four times this year at stabilizing with stabilizing terms. So wow. uh, we thought those two factors, along with what you noted about really positive Black Friday, results was enough to make now a good time to think about going to hold from a sell. No, and listen, I, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of us have had skepticism that this new player on the block is just kind of battled subprime in fancy new form um, and should show more weakness at these early stages of the cycle, but it hasn't. And I guess my question would be, what do you think is going on overall with, with the people or the consumer and its usage of buy now, pay later? Because every headline I'm seeing or every every hot take on social media basically says, Oh, I roll the Cyber Monday spending because if if all that's or a big chunk of that's coming from buy now, pay later, it's almost like that's cheating or that doesn't count. Why do you think people have this this sense about buy now, pay later? Well, I, you know, stepping back and thinking about consumer credit trends, I would say the following. You know, we're still monitoring all types of consumer credit trends and we're still going through some type of credit cycle with the consumer. The non-prime consumer is about two years into the cycle, which wow. was really catalyzed by inflation, the prime consumer is now going through some type of exhaustion. So we're seeing delinquencies still creep higher. So part of this demand for buy now, pay later is likely tied to the fact that a lot of these consumers don't have access to other sources of credit. That's still net net good for a firm, right? The, the value of their service is climbing the 
the, the, the polls of the consumers that have lost access to credit elsewhere. And given the rate of increase of adoption, a firm can still grow, but also be selective. So I think that there's a balance that a firm needs to strike here, given that it is still a net risky time to be growing rapidly with this type of credit pro product, but I think they're in a good position to do so. Finally, then, do you think, and we spoke with the CEO of Klarna yesterday, and, and he says, every time I say, well, we don't know how it performs through down cycle, he said, yes, we do. My company was here through the financial crisis. We do know how we perform through a down cycle. And what you're saying now about their relative outperformance of a firm versus its peers, do you think buy now, pay later can end up being a structurally better product than what's out there otherwise on the market? Well, what I'd say we know is this. I mean, the, the duration or the length of borrowing terms um, within the Affirm product base is, is much tighter than other products like revolving loans or longer term installment loans. And we know that the shorter duration a loan product has, the lower losses it has. I mean, if you just think about it, the less time that a, that that a that move that transpires between a loan and a loan payment, the less things can happen negatively in a person's life. So short duration. Um, helps credit and a firm is leaned in on that type of lending product. And obviously, they've obviously figured out ways to underwrite for that type of activity. So I think there is a structural benefit to what a firm um, offers in terms of credit products. Yeah. And I think we're seeing some of the benefits of that right now. Real quickly, I know we have to go. What's your upside for the shares at this point? And why you don't we're have right. a buy on them, right? No, we're, we're literally, the, the stock moved up a little bit today and it's right in line with where our new price target is. So we'll have to monitor the market and, and think about changes to that over time. Fair enough. John, thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it today. Thank you. John Hecht of Jefferies. Coming up, a trio of AI plays are on deck with results, and that includes Foot Locker, which reports tomorrow morning. We will explain the narratives and the numbers to know ahead of these reports, also Workday and Intuit. And as we head to break, take a look at gasoline prices across the country. You heard Steve Leisman mention this earlier. The national average is down 61 days in a row now, the longest streak in over a year. The average price of the pump down a nickel from last week, a quarter from last month, and 30 cents from last year, just 3.25 a gallon. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets after dipping towards session lows, but not quite going negative like we saw this morning. That was after the poor seven-year auction top of the hour. We're getting some momentum back. Dow's up 71. S&P's back in the green. So is the Nasdaq. Russell's still negative. And Bitcoin moving higher today. Following those dovish comments from the Fed's Christopher Waller, it's on track for its third straight monthly gain now. It's near 38000 It's more than doubled since Jan 1, and it's still having its best year since 2020 when prices quadrupled. Elsewhere, Interestingly, going the other way, the semis sliding for a fifth straight day after the SMH ETF hit a new all-time high last week. This five-day losing streak ties its longest one since February, though it's still on track to post its first positive month in three. And check out shares of Walgreens Boots. We don't say this often. Falling to their lowest level since 1998. 
under $20 a share today. It's in the Dow, and it's the worst performer in the Dow over the past year, losing half its value. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now. She knows all about this story for the CNBC News update. Bertha? That's right. Kelly, Americans are not expected to be among the hostages released from Gaza today. That according to a senior U.S. official and diplomat in the region who tells NBC News the White House is waiting for two American women who fit the hostage release criteria to be freed. Senior officials have said they don't know where these women are being held or by whom. Current pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas is set to expire tomorrow. North Korean state media claimed today that the country successfully used its spy satellite to take photos of the White House, Pentagon and U.S. aircraft carriers at the Norfolk Naval Base, but offered no proof. The country launched its first spy satellite last week. And Sandy Hook families have offered to settle with Alex Jones and that $1.5 billion legal debt for at least $85 million, pennies on the dollars, to be paid over the next 10 years. Families were originally awarded the money in legal judgments after Jones called the 2012 school shooting a hoax. If Jones does not expect the offer, accept the offer, the bankruptcy judge will determine just how much he pays the families and his creditors. Kelly, back over to you. Bertha, thank you so much, our Bertha Coombs. Coming up, we always talk about whether you should be in stocks or bonds, but what about the other options? Are securitized assets the place to be in this market? We'll talk to the manager dominating the up-and-coming market of ETFs, tracking CLOs. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. UBS Chairman Colm Kelleher warning that a bubble is forming in private credit. We've talked a lot about the growth of that asset class. He says it could take, quote, just one thing to trigger a fiduciary crisis. The market has roughly tripled in size over the past eight years. But if private credit is becoming too crowded, if you're nervous about stocks or maybe bonds, where else can investors turn for alternative assets? My next guest has an answer or two. He recently launched an ETF with exposure to various securitized loans, including mortgage-backed securities. Joining me now is John Kirshner, head of U.S. Securitized Products and a portfolio manager at Janice Henderson. It is great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Glad to be here. I do think we should right away clear up the potential (coughs) misconception that some of us have about whether CLOs were involved with the financial crisis. And they were not. Um, I know CLOs, one letter different from CDOs. CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, were made up of subprime mortgages. Subprime mortgages did not do well, defaulted left and right. Because of that, what was created out of them, CDOs, did not do well. CLOs made out of leverage loans, or bank loans, two names for the same thing. Those are corporate loans. Mm. They did fine through the uh, global financial crisis. They did. And there's never been a AAA CLO that has ever defaulted in 30 years. Does that worry you that now might be the time? No, not really, um, because we do a lot of stress testing of our portfolios. And really what you need is a GFC times three or four X. That would be an incredibly severe type of stress. And we just don't see that playing out right I mean, now. we've talked about how the credit quality of major companies is almost better than that of major countries at this point. Um, right. You know, the, look, just look at the yields and, and what that's telling you. Look at all the cash that they have on hand. 
What makes CLOs different from, and we mentioned the ETF you're starting, there's already an ETF for bank loans. People can go and get exposure right. to floating rate, which a lot of people like now right. because obviously it's been moving up. Um, what makes CLOs more attractive as a, as a product? What's the difference? Yeah, and actually there are a lot of ETFs for bank loans. The problem is the bank loan market average credit rating is single B. It's actually very low rated. And so you have risks of default, particularly as rates have gone up because leveraged loans are floating rate that interest expense is gonna catch up to that. Exactly. The nice thing about CLOs is you're taking a very diversified portfolio of several hundred bank loans. You have a CLO manager managing it. You're putting a securitization around it that gives you additional protections. And then you have managers like Janice Henderson that are picking the best CLOs out there to put in the ETF. So you get cash flows, securitization, extra protection, and then the very top slice of the cash flows go into our AAA ETF, and that's why you have that protection and no AAA So they are still default. floating rate in contrast, for instance, to maybe the investment grade or junk bond market exactly. where things are a little bit more fixed. This is a bit of a departure, but I want to come back to the comments we heard about, the warning in private credit earlier. The problems you're describing with floating rate loans directly bear on the success that private credit and private equity to some extent should have in the next couple of years. Do you think we should all, in pension funds, be a little bit cautious about those asset classes? Well, I'm not going to speak for uh, other pension funds, but why we like securitization is because you can still get exposure, but at much higher credit quality. And given that the economy is doing very well, but could slow down, we think that is imperative that people don't reach for yield right now. You don't have to. Our CLO ETF, JAAA, was positive last year and when most bond funds were down double digits, and it's up 7.5% this year. That's not best bond fund out there, but I think most people would agree that's a very attractive return, particularly for a AAA asset. All of that said, CLOs are one piece of the securitized assets. You guys still do a lot with uh, traditional mortgage-backed securities, if right. I'm not mistaken. What is going on with those asset classes? Do you think they're attractive here? Are they something you'd stay away from? What What are the pros think? No, mortgage is very cheap, mostly because of what's gone on with interest rate volatility and Signature Valley Bank. Uh, they've widened out a lot, still government guaranteed, probably 100 to 70, 70 basis points cheap than they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. We think as the Fed is done and rates continue to come down, mortgages will outperform and do very, very well. Other securitized got very cheap last year because people were forecasting a recession, most securitized is consumer credit, our loans, credit card loans, mortgage loans. They wind out a lot. They haven't come back in again. Would you, do you think that's a place people should get exposure, though? Or that absolutely. feels like a little bit of a nervous place to be if you're concerned well, about the economy? I mean, you just heard Steve Leesman and, and your other guest, Steve Oslan, talk about how how good the consumer is doing. They have 500 billion of excess savings, unemployment's low, gas prices, you just said, coming down 61 straight days, 31 trillion of home equity in there. The consumer's doing well. And there's no reason really to think that they're gonna be doing that much worse in the next few months. Very so we're very bull bullish well, on the consumer. JAAA, if I'm not mistaken, that's your collateralized loan, AAA ETF, obviously. Exactly, and we just launched JSI, which will invest in the uh, entirety of securitized products. It's a $5 trillion market that very few people have exposure to. If people want to do their research, I think you've given them a project. Give us a call. We, yeah. will, we will walk you through it. <laughs>
and they're not CDOs. Uh, John, thank you so much for yeah, joining Kelly, us. Yeah, Kelly, pleasure to be Really here. appreciate it. John Kirshner with Janice Henderson. Still to come, shares of Pinduo Duo are up 18% today. That's a 52-week high after a huge earning beat with sales nearly doubling from last year versus competitor Sheehan, whose likely IPO filing is probably also giving them a lift. Those aren't the only headlines out of China today. Our Eunice Yoon joins us here on set next. Welcome back. It is cold and flu season here for those of us in the U.S. and the Northern Hemisphere. But China is meanwhile seeing a surge in respiratory illnesses that's drawing global attention. Eunice Yoon joins me with that story on set Thrilled to have you here, Eunice. Uh, wish it were better news. Hope it's not COVID this time again. Yeah, so that's um, one of the uh, rumors that's been going around, but still just a rumor. Yeah. Uh, children's wards are getting so crowded in some cities that parents are swapping advice online to bring camping equipment and folding chairs to make the wait more comfortable. Emergency fever clinics have told local media to expect waiting times of half a day. China is battling a wave of respiratory illnesses that has raised fears of an emergence of a new pathogen. Chinese health officials, though, say that this is a mix of viruses and bacterial infections that are reported and known in other countries, uh, uh, viruses such as RSV. Now, the, H- the WHO backs Beijing's perspective, uh, saying that there is no novel pathogen here. Instead, they've been arguing that China is coping with what most countries dealt with a year or two ago. Uh, schools in some cities have suspended classes. Businesses, though, have remained open, and the government is advising mask wearing, vaccinations, ventilation, and social distancing. No shutdown so far. Um, officials are warning that the outbreak could last into the spring. We all have familiarity with this. Last yep. year was a nightmare. Every single month, there was something new ravaging households and going around schools. So I guess the in that sense, we shouldn't be too surprised if that's what this is, unless there's something new about it or something that could become new as a result that could then make its way back around. Right. And I think that that question is what people are worried about, because in China, there's just been this trauma because of the pandemic as well as the lockdown. So people aren't so sure if they should believe whatever the government is saying, especially on health issues. And then, of course, overseas, this is another big issue. So. And it's interesting what you say. I mean, half day waiting times. It, People in that, the, as we've heard, there's this PTSD already from just yeah. how bad the, the lockdowns were. So maybe they don't officially call it lockdowns now, but to have to go back through that must be traumatic. And I even have to wonder if it's going to have reverberations on the economy. Yes, I've um, thought before that it would be a really interesting study that will likely never happen mm. about the impact mm-hmm. of um, all of these lockdowns on um, even not only the economics, but also the the mental health toll that's, that's happened in China. But in terms of the economics, it's it's already such a, a rough place um, from a an optimism standpoint, from a young person standpoint. People are always worried about their jobs. They're saying that there just aren't that many. Um, people don't really feel as though their prospects are great. And a lot of this is because of the three years of lost income. Do you get the sense anyone is kind of putting off big rebound travel plans or or things because of these this latest bout of illnesses? Well, that was one sort of bright spot, um, the travel. So we were seeing a big surge in travel, well, relatively so, but it's still not necessarily something that people feel that they could do because of all of these these um, illnesses at the moment. Um, we were talking also about the economy. One other thing is that we have not seen the kind of inflows of foreign investment as we've had in the past. Right, um, right. In fact, it's been negative. Um, foreign direct investment has been has turned negative. Amazing. Which was huge. And a lot of it is because the complaints that I hear from, from foreign executives is that, yes, we have had 
concerns when we've done our business in China. Um, unfair playing field is a big one. People have said that it's really rough, but at the same time, now they have to deal with not only the slowing economy, but also the fear of detentions, exit bans, and all these added... Absolutely these added unknowns. Yeah, it's a very different uh, period now for the China. And maybe after the summit that we had the, you know, last week, APEC and all that, we can kind of turn a corner again, but uh, this won't help. Eunice, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Eunice, you here on set, as I mentioned. Still ahead, Workday has beaten on the top line every quarter for the past five years. Intuit shares are up about 11% since laying out their AI plan at Investor Day two months ago. And with 13% short interest in Foot Locker, is a sneaker short squeeze ahead? We'll talk about it in Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange. More earnings underway this week. Let's get right to it. Joining us with our trades today, Delano Sapporo is New Street Advisors Group founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Delano, it's great to see you again. We've got kind of sort of AI angles for all three of these. Let's walk through them one by one, starting with Workday. 40% higher on the year. DA Davidson says strong pipeline build and client interest in AI has something to do with that. They also expect their subscription revenue to climb 18% from the previous year. You like this one? Would you stick with it? Yeah, I, w- I would stick holding this one. And the reason why I'm doing that is it's a, it's a question of how much is already priced into the stock. Um, you mentioned a little bit about their subscription revenue and the growth there. The retention was strong last quarter. I think that's the key metric I'm looking for, obviously, with the subscription model business. And you, there's a little bit of also what they're doing in the shift in strategy. They're shifting towards that partner selling, which could be potentially higher margin versus the internal selling. Um, so I think some of that's already priced in. That's the reason why I'd be holding. Some things that may not be priced in is kind of that penetration they have with Fortune 500 companies. And also, if you're looking at the financial and insurance companies, that's an area they mentioned hmm. in their investor day pitch that is uh, actually heavily still on premises when it comes to their IT environment, which they think may shift to that cloud and some of those AI capabilities that they can pro- provide for them. Yeah. So I think that's that investors should look for long-term if they're planning on holding this stock. And I think that's potentially a positive. All right. Workday, mildly positive. Next one, you're more positive, and it's Intuit, whose shares are up 14% this month, 45% for the year. And Morgan Stanley says they're among the best-positioned software companies when it comes to incorporating generative AI. The street will be watching to see how Intuit deploys and monetizes it across things like TurboTax, QuickBooks, all those familiar names. Why are you so bullish here? Yeah, and this, again, is, is another of the long-term trends. You mentioned generative AI, and Intuit has obviously a robust look at uh, over 100 million customers and how they do things on you know, their tax side, their financials, all those different things that they look at. So the reason why I like it is their small business and self-employed group of the side of the business, right? That continues to show a lot of growth, um, even in the face of what's going on for consumers, relatively speaking, the macro environment. So that has a lot of TAM and it's growing. It's done well for them. If you look at the, the offsetting portion, that's obviously going to be on the, the business, the consumer side, which the credit card business is starting to slow a little bit. And I think that continues to slow. But I think that's really offset by the growth in the trends when it comes to small business and self-employed individuals across right. domestically across the country. I like it. I, what I'm curious about is what is the AI play with Foot Locker? The shares are up 3%, but they're down 40% for the year. City downgraded them yesterday. They're talking slowing demand, elevated inventory, challenges with the Nike relationship. What do you do here? 
Yeah, this is one that is, is more fade for me. And if you look at it, that's uh, the good question about what they're going to do with AI. Um, I was looking at the portfolio of business and what they're bringing to the table in stores. Um, as you mentioned, it looked like at first the Nike partnership was going to have actually less than 50% of their portfolio. They've actually renewed that uh, partnership and it looks like it's going to be closer to 50 to 55%. So that's a positive for them, but it's still a lot lower than roughly the 75% that they had prior, yep. which I think was a strong point for them when you look at, you know, obviously where, yeah. where the shoe market. So I, I think, you know, they're driving inventory by lowering margin. I think that's something that can sustain for now, but I don't know how much longer exactly. they can do that. Uh, I think that's, you know, more of a, a, a fade on my end. Problematic, even if they're using AI to track consumer behavior, which is, you know, there you go. Uh, Delano, thanks. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. Delano Sicoro for Earnings Exchange. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.